What makes a monster? You know how in some stories a scary monster is revealed to just be as scared as we are? Let's look more closely at that. Are monsters just our fears materialized? When we misunderstand something, do we create something else to externally embody our fears? In trying to remove our fear, we create a terrible scapegoat onto which we can pour our hostility and pain. Kill the monster, kill the fear. That's what we tell ourselves. But who is the real monster? Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a writer and an actor who would love to believe in things like Bigfoot and leprechauns, but knows that time and time again, these kinds of cryptids are ultimately disproved through science and worse, shown to be relics of often very problematic beliefs. Today, we'll learn about one such so-called cryptid whose life was dictated by the fears of others. A woman who paid the price for our ignorance and who should serve as a cautionary tale to us all. Let's meet Zana, the, I truly cringe to even say this, ape woman of Russia. But first, let me go wash my mouth out with soap. I'm no anthropologist, strangers, but one thing I've learned from doing this podcast is that most cultures have a cryptid or two. You've got your chupacabra, your Loch Ness monster, your mothman, your frogman, your Jersey devil, and among dozens more, your big feet. In fact, hominid creatures like Bigfoot seem to be the most ubiquitous cryptid. Maybe it's a secret desire to meet a long-lost relative. Like all those stories you hear of people finding out they have siblings through 23andMe. But instead of your half-sister Deborah, it's a next-door species to humans. Our fascination with our nearest Animal Kingdom relatives is obvious in their popularity at zoos, as pop stars' best buddies, anyone remember Michael Jackson's chimp buddy Bubbles? and in the dozens of Planet of the Apes movies that have been made to date. There's nothing like watching a chimpanzee pick their butt, smell their finger, and then fall over to remind you of your MAGA hat-wearing Uncle Bob falling off his chair after one too many Miller High Lifes. But couple that fascination with a fear of the unknown or different, and you start to venture into dangerous territory. For the people of the Caucasus region in Eastern Europe, the venture into this territory began at least as far back as the 1500s, when German explorer and writer Hans Schielitberger recorded sightings of what was to become known as Almas or Almasti or Abanoia, translated in English to wild man. What the origin of the legend of the Almas is, I'm not sure. You'd have to go to Aaron Mankey for that. What I do know is that the most famous Almas story is of the Almas named Zana. And here, listener, is where I warn you that we are going to encounter all kinds of racism disguised as research in this episode, so take care if you find that sort of thing triggering. To place us geographically, for those of us who don't know where on Earth the Caucasus region is, it's north of Turkey and Iran, south of Russia, between the Caspian and the Black Seas. So now, when you're on Jeopardy, you can confidently buzz that buzzer when Mayim says, this mountain range is considered to be the natural barrier between Asia and Eastern Europe. You're welcome. 
Zana, the so-called Almas, allegedly lived in the forest in Abkhazia in the Caucasus region in the 1800s. At some point, Zana was captured and sold to a string of wealthy people who enslaved her. Eventually, she landed in the home of a nobleman named Iji Ganaba, where she lived until her death around 1890. Her legend grew and spread after her death, and in September of 1964, a group of Soviet scientists visited the region Zana was said to have lived to try to find people who were still alive and had been around when Zana had been there. One of these scientists was Boris Porshnev, who was revered as one of the founding pioneers of Russian monster hunting. It's not common to find a monster hunter who is also an actual scientist. The two vocations usually don't go together. And while most scientists are quick to be like, there's no such thing as Bigfoot, Porshnev believed that the Almas and Sasquatches and presumably Bigfeet and Yetis could be descendants of the Neanderthal species. Back then, Neanderthals were believed to be humans' dumb, extinct cousins. But tell that to my 23andMe results. I'm about 2% Neanderthal, and I'm definitely not extinct. As for being dumb, that tracks. Anyway, Russia, apparently, has a long and rich history of monster hunting. In fact, even though most scientists try to distance themselves from believers in monsters, in 1958, the Soviet government sent a group of people called a Snowman Commission to follow up on Alma sightings in the Pamir Mountains. But Porshnev was not like most scientists. For one thing, he had actually run away with the circus when he was young. And then, according to a 2017 paper in the journal Stasis about Porshnev entitled Boris Porshnev's Dialectic History, he was at some point forcibly returned home from the circus. I wonder what it takes to be forcibly removed from a traveling circus. Yikes. After the circus, Porshnev went to university in Moscow and studied history, psychology, and biology. He remained relatively unknown to the wider world, but had a little bit of influence in academic circles. His later work, devoted to human evolution, was influenced by the Marxist ideology to confirm materialism, which, after reading the explanation of five times, I still don't understand. The author of the stasis paper about Porshnev offers this simple summary of the concept. Quote, history is not about the relationship between an individual and the species, but about a split within the species into us and them, and the relations of domination and emancipation, end quote. Listen, I'm no socio-anthropologist, and I am part Neanderthal, so I really can't help explain this. Though I'm willing to go out on a limb and say this theory sounds like a terrific groundwork for some pretty racist beliefs. That said, racists have a rich history of turning any theory of evolution into justification for racism. Anyway... The history of Zana pretty much only exists in the form of Porshnev's book, Neanderthal Man Still Exists, written from his several visits to the village of Tekina, where Zana was said to have lived out her life, published in 1974. In the book, Porshnev wrote, Some people currently alive still remember her. She was buried in the years 1880 to 1890, but among the inhabitants of the hamlet, and its environs alive today. More than ten attended her funeral. 
Those over 80, and even more so centenarians, knew Zana for some time, and we have been able to draw interesting souvenirs from their memory. The most detailed descriptions of the creature were provided by Lanschatz Sivikia, around 105, and her sister Digva Sivikia, over 80, Nestor Sivikia, around 120, Kona Kokuna, also 120, and Chamba, around 100. One may easily say that in the whole area there is not a single household where there aren't some family memories of Zana. First of all, what was going on in this area of the world that people were sauntering around at 120 years old recalling anything, let alone something from decades before? Most of the time, I can't remember where I left my glasses, and they're literally on my face. And so, from the accounts of these centenarian eyewitnesses, more than a half century later, the story of Zana unfolded. I should start this section, strangers, by issuing another trigger warning. If stories about the capture and enslavement of humans cause you upset, please take care. Also take care if you're triggered by racist cryptozoology speak. We're going to be pulling some quotes from Porshnev's wackadoo research, though, as always, I will do my best to not be gratuitous and needlessly graphic. No one knows for sure when Zana was captured, or even where she was captured from. Some accounts placed her in the forests of Mount Zadan, which, as far as Google is concerned, doesn't even exist. Others on the coast, as far south as what is today Ajaria. Porshnev pointed out that the name given to her, Zana, is evidence that she may have been near Ajaria, as the word Zana is close to the Georgian word Zangi, which means dark-skinned or Negroid. Zana's skin was black or dark gray. She was covered from head to toe with reddish-black hair, especially thick, over her lower body. In some areas, the hair was as long as the width of the palm of a hand, but not very dense. Down at the feet, the hair disappeared completely. The soles of her feet were completely hairless. I mean, yeah, most soles of most feet are hairless, Bob. The hair on her face was sparse and short. In contrast, however, her head was a mass of matted black, rough and shiny hair that created a kind of papaka, heavy fur hat, and fell back like a mane off her shoulders and back. A built-in fur hat? Yes, please. Zana was tall, but massive and heavy-set. Her breasts were disproportionately large. Disproportionately large? Someone doesn't understand human anatomy very well. Her behind was large and highly placed. Same. Her limbs were solidly muscled, but her leg had a strange shape without a well-defined calf. The fingers of her hand were longer and thicker than those of humans. Her toes could spread out in a fan, particularly when she was angry. The big toe spread out more than the others. Let's pause here to remember that these are the supposed memories of people supposedly over a hundred years old. 
I'm not even sure I could describe my husband in as much detail as these people describe someone from 60 years earlier. And I see my husband naked all the time, unfortunately. Ugh. Have you ever seen a naked man? Gross. I love my husband, but like, put those dangly bits away. No one needs to see that. Recently, he started undressing, and I said, are you getting undressed? And he said, yes, sorry. Anyway, Portionev continues. Zana's face was extraordinary. It was scary. Very scientific description here, sir. Thank you. You know whose face is scary? Steve Bannon. Hitler. Voldemort. Maybe she had a splotchy, bumpy face with no nose and a little black mustache? It was wide, with prominent cheekbones and coarse features. The nose was flat, with wide, upturned nostrils. The lower part of the face jutted out as much as a muzzle. The mouth was very wide, big teeth The nape was abnormally prominent. On its sloping forehead, hair started right at the thick and bushy eyebrows. The eyes were reddish, but what was most terrible was its expression, which was purely that of an animal. Her capture was, as one might expect the capture of any wild being to be. Porshnev wrote... It was not by luck that she was captured, but by the skill of the hunters, who had used a time-honored technique. When first tied up, she struggled furiously. She was beat up with sticks, gagged with a felt cloth, and fitted around her ankles with a wooden fetter to keep her from running away. After her capture, she changed hands a number of times. There's no explanation as to why, but I'm willing to bet she was not the greatest house guest. For good reason. She briefly lived with a vassal of the prince of a local sovereign kinglet in the Zadan forest. So I had to Google a bunch of shit in that sentence. Firstly, as far as I can tell, a vassal of the prince just seems to be a dude who promises loyalty to the prince who protects him in return. Call me crazy, but I thought the royal family was sort of supposed to protect all of its subjects. And a kinglet is a cute little bird with a colorful mohawk. Let's move on. Porshnev continues. Later, she was given to the noble... Edgi Gnaba, when he visited, she was carried, tied up like a salami, to his property in the hamlet of Tkina. The exact date of that transfer is also unknown. However, from that time, the details provided by local informers became more concrete. Sure they do. At the beginning, Gnaba had installed Zana in a sturdy paddock made of large vertical posts. Her food was lowered to her without ever entering her space, for she behaved like a wild animal. She had dug a hole in the ground to sleep in. She remained for three years in this state of utter savagery. I'm sure Porshnev meant that the manner in which she was kept was savage. Three years in a cage. However, she was tamed gradually to the point that she was transferred to a shelter of woven branches underneath a screen near the house. 
Originally, she was held on a leash, but soon she was allowed to move freely. She did not wander far away from the area where she was fed. She could not stand living in a heated space and stayed outside all year under the screen in the yard where she had dug a new sleeping hole. Curious villagers came to see her and teased her with sticks, which she ripped away from their hand in rage. She chased away children and domestic animals with sticks and branches. Savage. Sometimes, although rarely, Zana would break into an uncontrollable laugh when she showed her white teeth. Nobody ever saw her laugh or cry. Nice she was able to keep her teeth white. I have trouble doing that, and the only cage I live in is the one called capitalism. But um bum Listen, being vulnerable in front of others takes trust. You can't expect someone you keep in a cage and taunt with sticks to show you their raw emotions. Porshnev then makes this remarkable statement. As all Abanyu or Almas, Zana had no articulate speech. Okay, let's unpack this sentence. Bitch, you have never actually seen or studied a so-called Alma. How the fuck are you going to walk around saying what kind of speech they do or do not have? Where did you go to school? Even my fiction professor wouldn't have let me get away with this kind of nonsense. But let's hear what other nonsense proclamations Porshnev made. Over the decades that she lived in Tekina, she never managed to pronounce a single word of Abkhazian. She could only mutter, utter inarticulate sounds, and when irritated, howl like a beast. She was sharp of hearing. She approached when hearing her name, obeyed her master's orders, and was fearful when he raised his voice. She didn't owe them shit, especially not learning the language of the oppressor. Get out of here. Porshnev then goes on to describe Zana's extraordinary strength and vigor. And somehow, magically, unlike literally every other animal known to humankind, including all of humankind, Zana didn't age. Her hair never turned white, her teeth never fell out. Again, incredible, considering her dental hygiene routine was probably severely lacking. And the way he describes it, it's like she just kept going as always and then one day died. According to Porshnev and his army of super old people with incredible memories, Zana could, quote, easily lift with a single arm a bag of flour weighing five pounds, put it on her head and carry it uphill, end quote. I mean, I could probably do that too, and I'm about as fit as a bag of flour. He claimed she could climb trees with ease to gather fruit and that she could crack, quote, even the hardest nut, end quote, with her teeth. I mean, no, she couldn't, but okay. She could also, apparently, run as fast as a horse and easily swim the turbulent river even in flood times, which begs the question, why didn't she just swim or run the fuck away? Porshnev wrote, Zana was a trove of strange instincts and behaviors. To feast on grapes, she would pull the whole vine that climbed up a giant tree. To cool off, she would lay in a mud hole with water buffaloes. She would wander off in the neighborhood at night. To fend off dogs, she would use a large stick. 
Strangely, she loved to play with stones, banging them against each other until they broke. She warded off dogs with a large stick? What strange behavior. Listen, wallowing in a mud hole sounds amazing, and people pay hundreds of dollars to do exactly that. And she didn't pick grapes the way Porshnev thought was appropriate. He also said Zana would rip apart any clothes put on her, but was, quote, trained to wear a loincloth that covered her thighs. How convenient. We wouldn't want to have to look at her shameful naughty bits. Though one would think with all that hair, we couldn't see any naughty bits anyway. I'm surprised they didn't train her to wear coconuts over her disproportionately large breasts. Apparently, one of her owners had branded her cheek with a hot iron. So, that's cool. According to Porshnev, Women were afraid of her and would only approach her when she was clearly in a good mood. When irritated or angry, Zana was indeed terrifying. She would sometimes bite. Same. Her master knew how to calm her down. She did not attack children who were generally afraid of her. In the region, ill-behaving children were menaced with Zana's presence. Even horses were afraid of her. Zana was trained to do basic farm labor, hauling, grinding, and getting water from the well. But it seems the men of the town found another use for Zana. Sigh. Porshnev wrote, More than once, the Neanderthalian found herself pregnant from various men and actually gave birth. Found herself pregnant. She delivered her babies without any assistance. She would then dip the baby to wash it in the icy waters of the stream. The little hybrids could not stand such freezing immersions and quickly died. This is just stupid. People do this with human babies, too. In fact, they did it with my baby in the hospital because he was having trouble breathing. The cold water prompted him to take a big breath and let out a wail. Sorry, little Monty. At least they didn't hold you by your ankles upside down and smack your bare bottom, which is actually what they used to do to newborn babies to get them to cry. However, Zana did allegedly have four children who survived and supposedly have living descendants to this very day. Or at least they were when Porshnev was investigating. So, Zana, who the people of the village did not believe to be human, was raped by human men, gave birth to their babies, and had the babies taken from her to be raised respectably with humans. Humans who were willing to rape what they believed to be an animal of a different species respectably. And then they wondered why she never bothered to learn their language and preferred the company of water buffalo. Honestly. And to top it all off, when Zana died around 1890, she was buried in the family plot, which seems to me to be the absolute least they could possibly do for her. In addition to Porshnev's highly scientific research methods of quote, first-hand accounts from great-great-grandpa Bob, Porshnev was also looking for Zana's remains so he could study them and prove that she was actually a Neanderthal. During his first attempt to find Zana's remains in 1964, Porshnev hoped her son's grave would provide a clue. He wrote, 
Vegetation had invaded everything in the old graveyard. Only Quit's tomb, only ten years old, is still visible among the ferns on the hill, where, since then, nobody else has been buried. Zana must be somewhere nearby. We ask the old folks, the last descendant of the Knaba family, Kento, 79 years old insists with a commanding gesture that we are to dig over there at the foot of a pomegranate tree. Wouldn't you know it, despite this guy insisting that's where she was buried, he was wrong. Can you believe it? Apparently, that didn't give Porshnev pause. Or if it did, he didn't mention it. He wasn't like, then I thought, hmm, I wonder if maybe some of the other information they gave me might also not be accurate? He just kept going. He tried again the following year, once again relying on a super old guy to show him the way, and when they got to the cemetery in which this old guy was sure Xana was buried, it somehow looked completely different than it had more than 70 years earlier when Xana had died. Like, plants and stuff had grown. Like they do. This guy was like, uh, I'm sure it was right here somewhere. Porshnev made one more attempt to locate her bones, failed, and then died seven years later. In the end of Porshnev's life, and after his death in 1972, Russian monster hunter Igor Burtsev took over the search for Zana's remains. But Burtsev also failed after three attempts to find remains that matched the description of Zana. And so he took the next best thing, one of her sons. Bortsev brought the skull of Zana's son, Quit, to a couple of anthropologists in Moscow. Anthropologist M.A. Kolodiva concluded, quote, The Tekina skull exhibits an original combination of modern and ancient features. The facial section of the skull is significantly larger in comparison with the mean Abkhaz type. All the measurements and indices of the superciliary cranial contour are greater not only than those of the mean Abkhaz series, but also than those of maximum size of some fossil skulls studied, or rather were comparable with the latter. The Tekina skull approaches closest the Neolithic Vavnigi II skulls of the fossil series. End quote. And anthropologist M.M. Gerasimova said... Quote, the skull discloses a great deal of peculiarity, a certain disharmony, disequilibrium in its features, very large dimensions of the facial skeleton, increased development of the contour of the skull, specifically of the non-metric features. The skull merits further extended study, end quote. So, while Bortsev admitted that the stories of a few really old eyewitnesses wasn't enough to write home about, the skull findings went a long way in making those witness accounts more believable. According to blogger Ray Crow, at some point after finding Quit's grave, it's unclear when, Bortsev unearthed another grave next to Quit. Crow writes, quote, "...another female skull was unearthed at the Tekin Cemetery." The skeleton was buried on its side with its legs bent next to Quit's grave with a mirror at the head indicating that it was female. The skull was more robust than that of local women and was noted to have a large projecting jaw. In the grave was found a rubber shoe branded 1888, end quote. 
However, it should be pointed out that Crow's sources are almost entirely just other bloggers and podcasters, and the one legit magazine he cites doesn't say anything about Zana. So at this point, we may have entered the echo chamber of bloggers and podcasters who write about weird shit. Which is to say, take it with a grain of salt. Again, according to Crow, anthropological analysis indicated the remains belonged not to a Neanderthal, but to a woman from sub-Saharan African descent. And so, rather than reaching the conclusion that you and I reached from that, which is that perhaps Zana was, in fact, just an African woman, Bortsev apparently was like, well, then obviously this skeleton doesn't belong to Zana. Oh, sweetie. Why don't you sit down and take a little time out? Listen, I get it. If Zana was actually a black human being, that would make the stories of her barbaric treatment incredibly embarrassing, to say the least. Who wants to admit they treated a human being like an animal in a cage? I mean, our entire country was built by human beings we treated like animals, and still, many of us won't actually really admit it. But Oxford geneticist Brian Sykes, who was a master at DNA science, being the first person to extract DNA from an ancient bone, and who helped figure out that some conditions like double-jointedness and brittle bone disease are inherited, was like, let me take a look at this. And he analyzed samples taken from Zana's living descendants, as well as a tooth taken from the skull of her son, Quit, and lo and behold, Zana was 100% sub-Saharan African. Sykes shared his findings in a scientific paper. Unfortunately, Sykes had agreed to also share his findings as part of a documentary on Channel 4 in the UK called Bigfoot Files. And where his theory that Zana was, in fact, very likely just a human woman from sub-Saharan Africa should have been amazing enough considering it likely meant she had either been brought over in the chattel slave trade or was a descendant of someone who had managed to survive out in the wild for however long before she was captured and re-enslaved, that finding wouldn't have been sensational enough for a so-called documentary about Bigfoot. And so, Sykes went further and said that certain features of Xana's skull, such as wide eye sockets, an elevated brow ridge, and what appears to be an additional bone at the back of the neck, suggests that Xana may have actually been a remnant of a prehistoric human species. That her tribe had been forced into remote mountain regions when Homo sapiens came out of Africa and forced less advanced species out. Look... I'm no anthropologist. I think I may have already mentioned that once or twice, including already in this episode. But the idea that some ancient species of hominid, hitherto undiscovered, had somehow survived for hundreds of thousands of years living virtually side by side with sapiens seems... What's the word? Preposterous. That's it. Pre-fucking-posterous. And also tremendously racist. Paul Z. Myers, a biologist who teaches at the University of Minnesota, put it this way. Does the London Times routinely publish crackpot pseudoscience with no fact-checking at all? 
I've just read their latest piece on the notorious Brian Sykes Bigfoot Hunter, and it's the kind of gullible tosh I'd expect from a Murdoch tabloid. It's got one paragraph that mentions that other scientists doubt his findings, but otherwise, it's a fluff piece for Sykes' new book about an ape woman, which is not only inane, but distressingly racist. Look at what he's claiming. An African woman was enslaved by 19th century racists, and she left some descendants. Sykes has analyzed DNA from people in that region and found evidence of an infusion of West African DNA into the population. You should be feeling zero surprise. A person lived, had children, died, and her descendants carry traces of her genome. That's basic biology. But... Then it goes off the rails. Sykes unquestioningly accepts the accounts of 19th century racists who regarded this woman as an animal to say that the evidence of West African ancestry somehow supports his contention that she was an ape woman who was descended from some relic population of a homo subspecies that had been hiding in the Caucasus Mountains for millennia, giving rise to legends of yetis and Bigfoot and other beastmen in the wilderness. That makes no sense. His own DNA analysis says she was 100% African. You know, African is not a synonym for pre-human, right? But he has written a whole book titled The Nature of the Beast. Horrid title that also manages to suggest that an enslaved African woman was less than human, in which he advances this ludicrous theory, and the Times has obligingly fluffed it for him. Thankfully, Dr. Ashat Margarian, who studies genomes and evolution at the University of Copenhagen, led a team in 2021 to study Zana's DNA using the latest technology available and concluded that Zana was, indeed, just a regular old human being. Our results prove that the unknown female buried in the Ganaba family cemetery was Zana herself. In contrast to the speculations that she might have been a female amnesty, we provide definitive genome-wide data to put an end to the accounts of her as anything but a human woman. Zana was likely of Eastern African descent, although we cannot rule out partially Western African ancestry. We hypothesize that her lineage could have arrived in the territory of present-day Abkhazia, South Caucasus, as a result of the slave trade practiced between the 16th to 19th centuries CE by the Ottoman Empire. As for whatever strange traits and behaviors Porshnev and the people of Tekina thought Zana had, Dr. Margarian writes, Lastly, we speculate that it was simply her unfamiliar individual physical characteristics, such as unusual behavior, physical strengths, tall stature, lack of recognizable speech and hypertrichosis, and the subsequent rumors over generations that fueled the myth of a non-human origin. Dr. Margarian theorized that Xana may have had hypertrichosis, an extremely rare genetic condition unfortunately commonly known as werewolf syndrome, in which abnormal amounts of hair grow over the whole body. He concluded his paper this way. Following her capture in the forest, Xana was likely deprived of her basic human rights and treated as a slave. She was kept in captivity, likely forced to have sexual relations with local men, and worked in forced labor conditions. Our findings elucidate Zana's unfortunate story and provide a clear example of how prejudices of the time led to notions of cryptic hominids that are still held and transmitted by some today. 
So there you have it. The sickening and tragic, if not very surprising, tale of Zana. When we tell stories, we usually take the point of view of the protagonist or the hero of the story. We've all heard the expression, the victors write the history books. But as soon as we adopt another point of view in these stories, things can often look very different. To the people of the village, Zana was subhuman, an animal, a monster to be reviled. They used her differences as justification to treat her inhumanely and with abuse, without decency, compassion, or respect, without empathy, without the traits we associate with humanity. They were violent. They were scary. They wielded their power over Zana cruelly. In other words, they were monstrous. Then, generations of people upheld the notion that Zana was some kind of abomination, and scientists attempted to exploit her existence for their own professional gain while continuing to rob her of any dignity. I guess, strangers, what I'm saying is, there are a lot of monsters in this story, but Zana is not one of them. Next time on Strange and Unexplained. In the middle of the 19th century in upstate New York, two normal young girls start an international spiritual movement completely without meaning to. Part one of the story of the Fox sisters. We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have a story you'd like us to cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. Strange and Unexplained is a production of the Obsessed Network and is produced by Becca DiGregorio and Natalie Grillo. This episode was written by me, Daisy Egan, researched by Jess McKillop, and edited by Eve Kerrigan. Our audio mixer and engineer is Jennifer Swatek. Our voice actors for this episode were Luther Creek, Ryan Garcia, and Marquise Villasson. If you like our show, please help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. If you don't, (laughs) don't leave a review. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We are at SNUPod. And check out the Strange and Unexplained Facebook page to join in the conversation. 